Good morning. Let's open in prayer. God, uh, we invite you here. We know that you're already here, but we invite you to be active. I invite you to be active in my heart, in my words as I speak. Be active in our hearts as we listen, as we process, as we learn, as we dig into your word. Um, Yeah, make our hearts soft, able to be changed by your truth. Uh, make our minds open and uh, and help us to yeah to really engage with the life changing life giving uh, message of Scripture, God, in Your name, Amen. What are you afraid of? What causes you fear? I'm sure for many of us, we've got quick answers: clowns. Oh. I, five minutes ago, I had it, I was cycling it in my head, and I forgot again. Children's church in the back. So that's ages two to six. If you want to go uh, to children's church, you can head downstairs. I thought you were gesturing because you were afraid of something. <laughs> I want to tell you a story about fear. This is maybe 12 or 13 years ago. Uh, my extended family was together for a weekend gathering at a Bible camp in Ontario, Lake of the Woods area, and they had a swimming area on the lake they were on and a floating dock. And we decided that what we were going to do was release that dock from its anchor and see if we couldn't paddle it across the lake. About seven or eight of us cousins grabbed canoe paddles and life jackets and hopped onto this thing to get it around and across to the other side of this narrow lake that we were on. But about halfway through... A wakeboarding boat zipped by, kicked up a huge wake, large waves, rocked us back and forth. It wasn't a big deal. We weren't disturbed by the waves at all. But you know what was disturbed by the waves? The nest of dock spiders that were living underneath that floating dock. I've got a picture here of a dock spider. And in case you're doubting, I made sure that this was grabbed from somebody who found it in western Ontario, right close to where that camp is. And as the waves began to crash into our floating dock, about a do- I'm shaking telling you this story, about a dozen of those spiders, maybe more, to be honest, I wasn't counting very carefully, hopped through the cracks of the dock and onto its surface. Now, fun fact, the dock spider is the largest native species of spider in Canada. Many of them were large enough that they could have been, they would have been tight to fit into the palm of my hand. And there were about seven or eight of us on a 40-square-foot platform in the middle of a lake with nowhere to go. We started flicking these things off the dock with our paddles into the lake, but more of them kept jumping up faster than we could flick. And worse than that, the ones that we managed to get off could swim. Another fun fact, apparently these guys can walk on water and dive under the water and hold their breath for up to a half hour at a time. So not only... Where we trapped on a dock with a bunch of gigantic angry spiders, we had surrounded ourselves with a floating moat of more angrier spiders. Eventually, we jumped off the dock itself, desperately trying to high jump over the spider moat that we had created, splashed down in the water, and with blind terror, thrashed our way back to shore with that special kind of frenzy reserved for people in lakes trying to get away from something. I hope for all of your sakes that none of you can directly relate to my story. But I'm sure we can all relate 
to that sort of wide-eyed, panicky fear that took me over along with my cousins on that dock, that chest-tightening terror as we thrashed our way back to shore, convinced that we were being followed by a horde of scuba-diving, vengeful spiders. I don't generally fear spiders. Mostly I can deal with them just fine, but when I think about fear, I think of that moment. That is the moment in my life that defines fear for me. And today we're going to talk about fear. We're going to talk about the fear of God. And the Bible has a lot to say about the fear of God, especially in the Old Testament. The fear of God is mentioned over and over again. And this is a tough subject to understand sometimes because when I think about fear, I think about the way I felt swimming away from those spiders. And that doesn't feel like how I should feel about Jesus. Fear strikes me as a, it's a negative emotion, something that should never be a part of a healthy relationship, not between people and certainly not between me and God. I can't really make sense of that. It doesn't seem right to me. Fear to me seems like a tool of slavery, something that traps you. And yet, we see people being called to fear God all through the Bible. It comes up dozens of times throughout. So I come to a crossroads. Either I am wrong or the Bible is wrong. And I hope you know me well enough to know which side I landed on with that. So, sometimes... This is how picking a sermon goes for me. Sermons are an opportunity for me to dig deeper into something that maybe I don't fully understand or something that I want to know more about or, or catch on a deeper level. And then I get to share my discoveries or my processing with you guys. So I decided to wrestle with the idea of fear for this sermon. What does the fear of God actually look like? And to start, I want to take a look at two big mistakes that we can make when we think about the fear of God. So one mistake we can make is just brushing it off. Some of us as Christians just end up kind of ignoring or glossing over this concept. Maybe they would point to a verse like 1 John 4.18, which says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Maybe they would argue that fear is an Old Testament concept. It's an Old Covenant concept. And when Jesus came as the perfect sacrifice, he also drove out all fear. So now only love remains. And that sounds really good. And there's no question that a fair bit of the scripture that we have on fear does come from the Old Testament. But the New Testament writers still speak of the fear of God. Paul actually quotes the Old Testament. He quotes David in the Psalms when describing the wicked and saying that for them, the thing that makes them wicked is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. And Peter calls us to fear God and honor the king. And in fact, Jesus himself still commands us to fear God. He says in Matthew, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So we can't just ignore or brush aside the idea of fear of God as an outdated concept or something that isn't relevant after Jesus came. And the other side of things is that maybe for some of us, we have grown up with a fear of God, but it's been an unhealthy fear of God. Maybe the fear of God that we have is something that makes us feel a little bit like I felt with those spiders. Mike 
Pastor Mike has shared before in a sermon a few years ago, I think, about his fear of the rapture. As a child, this desperate nighttime prayer that he would do in order to ensure his salvation, this constant fear or anxiety hanging over his head, and maybe some of you feel that way, that God is standing there ready to smite or attack or take away things you love if you mess up or if you slip up or if you lapse or if you make a mistake. You're just one moment away from missing your entrance to heaven, that if God snaps his fingers on the wrong day, you're going to be left behind somehow. And that is not the sort of fear that God wants for us either. In fact, as I was processing this with Darren last week, uh, he pulled out his Bible and pointed me towards a passage of Scripture that characterized the fear of God really well for him. And that's in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. Uh, Moses has just finished delivering the Ten Commandments, and I'm, I'm going to start reading here in verse 18. It says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Do not be afraid, says Moses, so that you will have the fear of God. Isn't that interesting? There's an incredibly important distinction here. The fear of God is not the same as being afraid of God. In fact, it might be fair to say that we cannot properly experience the fear of God unless we are no longer afraid of God. And I have another piece of scripture that I want to use to unpack this a little further, and that's Psalm 111. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, take out your phones if you've got a Bible app on them. This is going to be a bit of audience interaction here on this psalm. So what I'm going to do is read through this once, and what I want you to be listening for, watching for, reading for, are different characteristics or character traits or attributes of God, things that define his character that come through when I read this psalm. And then afterwards, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just ask you to yell out some of those words to me, some of the things you heard about God's character in this psalm. So listen careful. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the council of the upright and in the, in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just, and all his precepts are trustworthy. They are steadfast forever and ever, done in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. So what are some words, some characteristics that you noticed as we read through that psalm together? You can just shout them out kind of popcorn style. Righteous. Righteous. Compassionate. Gracious. Are there any others? There's tons here. I made a list, actually. I can throw it up as we're talking. But um, these are some of the ones that I found. This praiseworthy, great, glorious, majestic, righteous, awesome, wonderful, gracious, compassionate, provider, faithful. Faithful is mentioned three times in this psalm. Holy, powerful, just, trustworthy, eternal, upright, and redeemer. In this small psalm, that is all packed into that. And if we take a look at this psalm, we can see that it ends with this statement about the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of all wisdom. That's what this psalm is driving towards. And so, if that's the punchline or the, or, the, or the climax of this psalm, we can argue that David is building a case here for why we should fear God. Why should we have a fear of the Lord? Why? Because he is glorious, praiseworthy, majestic, righteous, gracious, compassionate, all of these things... None of these things make the list of why I fear spiders. So it pretty quickly becomes obvious to me that we're talking about a different kind of fear. That we're not talking about being afraid of God, but that the fear of God could more accurately be described as a reverence towards God. Or an awe of God, or an understanding of the hugeness and the sovereignty of God. An overwhelming sense of how big he is, how dependent we are on him. And perhaps no other author had the ability to capture this fear like C.S. Lewis. Many of us read the Chronicles of Narnia growing up. I look forward to when Sebastian is old enough that I can read the Chronicles of Narnia to him. And in this book, in this series, we see characters discussing the God character in the book, this lion, Aslan. And Mrs. Beaver is talking to Susan about Aslan and says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan, I thought he'd be a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. No mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can approach before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So what changes when we fear God? Maybe the best way to understand our fear is to take a look at what that fear accomplishes in us. What changes when we have a proper fear of God? Just like a, a doctor diagnoses somebody based on their symptoms, maybe the symptoms or the results of a healthy fear of God can help us understand that fear itself. So I want to look at three aspects of this fear. Three outcomes from fearing God. And that will hopefully help us to have a more solid definition, a more solid understanding of what fearing God really is, what these writers were trying to get at. So the first Symptom, the first result of fearing God is a recognition of absolute truth. 
as I processed and as I discussed and as I, I prayed about this idea of the biblical fear of God, the, the word picture or the idea that came into my head uh, was gravity. The law or the principle of gravity. And this isn't a perfect analogy, but I think it illustrates a few things really well. And, and it helps me, at least, to think about my fear or my respect for God in a different way. And I can imagine uh, some of you might be scratching your heads at the end of this. Uh, but hopefully for some of you, it sticks or it lands or it helps uh, you to understand this in the same way that it did for me. Now, how many people in this room would categorize themselves as having a fear of gravity? That you're afraid of gravity? Not many of us, I think. I didn't see any hands go up. Uh, but all of us have a deep respect for gravity. We believe in gravity because we can see its effects. And our behavior, the way that we live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis, is totally shaped around gravity's existence. Uh, because of my fear of gravity, not that I'm afraid of it, but my respect for it, my understanding of it, I have total and absolute faith in the laws that it creates for my life, in the truth that it forces me to live in. I know that I'm not suddenly going to float off the ground. I know that if I hold a ball up and drop it, it's going to land. And so if we look at God or fearing God, maybe one way that we can look at it is, is as a sort of a moral or ethical or spiritual gravity. Uh, the world is, is fighting hard, society is fighting hard to get rid of the idea of absolute truth, to say that nothing is certain, everything is based on context, nothing is solid. But to fear God is to recognize that there is a truth at work. There is a law that is presented in the Bible that is bigger than us. That there is capital T truth out there that doesn't change based on what's convenient for us or what feels right to us in the moment. And a healthy fear of God means that our lives will begin to conform to this truth. Just like you would never jump out of a plane without a parachute, a fear of God forms your life to Jesus, to his example, because you recognize that to live outside of his truth, to deny his truth, is, is just as risky as stepping off the edge of a cliff expecting to float. Not because God is actively punishing you, but because that's the way the world works. There's a right way to do things. There's truth here. And if we were to perfectly fear God, we would have the same level of respect. In fact, we would have a higher level of respect for his word, for his truth, than we have for the concept of gravity. It would feel just as real to us. Does that make sense? A fear of God cultivates a life governed by ultimate truth, governed by the truth that we find in Scripture. And I see maybe a small example of this with Jonah, who felt God's call on his life to go to Nineveh, and he rebelled, running away on a boat to Tarshish. He decided that he didn't fear God enough to respect him, and God got his way. Gravity kicked in through extraordinary means, through a storm, and a bunch of superstitious sailors, and a three-day trip over to Nineveh in the stomach of a sea creature. Jonah's choice to run away from God was ridiculous. We can see that when we read it. How did he think he could escape God or hide from God? Jonah clearly did not have the proper fear of God in this situation. His choice was as foolish as throwing a ball up into the air and expecting it to hang there suspended. If we fear God, 
we recognize that following him and his plan for our lives, for us as a body, is just as important as respecting the very laws of nature that he himself created. And that leads us kind of into our second point, our second symptom, our second result of fearing God, which is fearing God will give us trust in his control. A second symptom of fearing God is that we stop being scared. Our anxiety goes away. A true fear of God places total confidence in his sovereignty. It allows us to step out of the boat like Peter and follow him. Uh, Oswald Chambers uh, sums this up beautifully. He says in his book, The Highest Good, that the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. And if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. What an amazing statement. A fear of God drives out fear of man. A fear of God drives out fear of failure. A fear of God drives out fear of inadequacy because a fear of God places him in the driver's seat. It makes him so large in our lives that there is nothing else that can compare. I love the story in Jeremiah 32 and what it shows us about fearing God. The chapter header in a lot of your Bibles for this chapter is going to simply say, Jeremiah buys a field. And you might wonder what that has to say about the fear of God. But what is important here is the context. Jeremiah is living in a war zone. Houses are being destroyed. Towns are crumbling. Fields are being raised. In verses 27 to 29... It says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I am about to hand this city over to the Babylonians and to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who will capture it. The Babylonians who are attacking the city will come in and set it on fire. They will burn it down along with the houses. And in the middle of this destruction... And desolation in the middle of this coming exile, in the middle of being pushed out of the land, God says to Jeremiah, buy a field. Now, you don't have to be Pat Siemens or Chris Tomic to guess at how war and famine and destruction impact property values. Never mind the fact that the Israelites living there were unlikely to survive and that those who did survive were going to be carted off to Babylon. Only an insane person would be making real estate transactions in this sort of a situation. But Jeremiah feared the Lord. And so it didn't matter that what he was being called to do didn't make sense. That it seemed insane. Jeremiah bought a field because God told him to. And at the end of the chapter, with Jeremiah's whole world burning down around him, God gives a picture of hope. He says, once more fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolate waste without people or animals, for it has been given into the hands of the Babylonians. Fields will be bought for silver, and deeds will be signed, sealed, and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Fear of God means that you don't fear anything else. Fear of God means that when he says so, you're willing to buy a field in a war zone. The third result of fearing God that I want to talk about is 
that fearing God draws us towards Him. This is a really good a litmus test. This is a good test for a healthy fear of God versus an unhealthy fear of God. Uh, this is maybe the most concise way I can show you or categorize the difference between a biblical fear of God and being afraid of God. An unhealthy fear, being afraid of God, will drive you away from relationship with Him. Even if that fear drives you to follow His rules, even if that fear drives you to live in a box that looks like what he calls us to do, it's going to destroy the relationship. Like a slave master and a slave. And a proper, a biblical, a true fear of God will drive you towards him. Being afraid of God will drive you away. But having a fear of God will drive you towards him, into his arms. Paul says beautifully in Romans 8, starting at verse 12, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of fear that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Paul says here not to live in fear. Not to be like slaves to fear, but instead recognize that we have been adopted into sonship by God our Father, our Abba, our Daddy. What Paul is doing here is making a clear distinction between the fear a slave feels towards his master and the respect and the awe, the fear that a child feels towards their father. Fear towards your father, you might ask? What good father-son relationship has fear in it? Huh, mine. And I'm sure many of yours. There was nothing that gave me more fear than when I was misbehaving during the day and my mom had had enough and she said the words, just wait until your father gets home. And I can't think of any better word than fear to describe how it felt sitting in my room waiting for my dad to show up knowing that a spanking was coming. Or when I was older, the fear of those little parental interventions that happen sometimes, those tough, we-need-to-talk moments. Now, did I ever for a moment doubt that my dad loved me? That he wanted what was best for me? Not for a second. Did those situations, those punishments, those talks, did they push me away from my dad? Did they separate me from my dad? No, if anything, they allowed our relationship to strengthen. Did I ever feel like I was more slave than son? Well, maybe sometimes. <laughs> but looking back, that fear, that respect, absolutely brought me closer to my parents. It turned me into a better person and it strengthened our relationship. Now, do some of us have dads who pushed us away with punishment, who did a bad job of discipline? Absolutely. There's absolutely unhealthy discipline and unhealthy fear in some parent-child relationships. But that has everything to do with our imperfection as humans. It does not discount the fact that there is an appropriate place for healthy fear and healthy respect in a parent-child relationship. And fear of God looks like that relationship. 
If we are cultivating a proper fear of God, it should drive us into his arms. It should inspire us to live in a way that delights our Heavenly Father. So the last question here is how do we cultivate this? How do we make this happen in our own lives? I'm currently taking a course at SBC on Anabaptist history. It's the stories of our great-great-great-grandfathers and grandmothers as they fought for what was right, not with violence, uh, but with their lives. The early Anabaptists documented story after story after story of martyrdom. In our history is the story of Dirk Willems, who escaped from prison and was pursued across a pond. And when the soldier chasing him fell in and began to drown, he turned around to save his captor's life, only to be recaptured and burned at the stake. Or the story of Anna of Rotterdam, a mother of a toddler who was caught singing an Anabaptist hymn in her carriage, who walked down the road to her own execution after refusing to deny her beliefs with her own 18-month-old boy in her arms, calling out, begging for anyone in the angry crowd to please take and raise her child. These stories have broken me. And I find myself asking could I do the same? If, I ever, if it ever came to it, could I make that choice? Could I trust God that much? The only reason those early martyrs were able to give their lives was because the fear of God in them was greater than the fear of anything else. Their stories are what got me asking these questions about what does it mean? What does it actually look like to be a God-fearing person? What does it mean to live with the fear of God? And maybe some of you are sitting here and you're realizing that you don't really feel this fear of God. Or maybe you realize that what you are is afraid of God. That the sort of fear that I've been talking about is not what a part of what your relationship with God is. And so, in closing, what I want to do is quickly go over three different things that we can do to help cultivate, to help grow uh, this fear of God in our lives. And the first thing that we can do is ask Him. God calls us to fear Him. He wants us to fear Him. And He has given us His Holy Spirit to live inside of us. All of us, if we are saved, already have that seed of awe and reverence inside of us. We have the Holy Spirit with us, and the fear of God is something that comes with that. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, and he wants us to ask him, like David does in Psalm 86, verse 11, when he says, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart, that I may fear your name. Jeremiah says that God will, that God wants to put his fear into our hearts so that we will not turn away from him. So the first thing that we can do is to ask God, help me. Help me build this. Help me cultivate this. Put this into my life. And the second thing that we can do is spend time in Scripture. John Calvin wrote that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. And if you want to grow in fear of God, you need to get to know God. And the best tool that we have for that is the Bible, His Word to us. As you read through his word, that fear, that awe, and that reverence will develop. Proverbs 2, verses 1 to 5, 
reads, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge of God. And the third thing that we can do is look at creation. If you want to cultivate a fear of God, I can think of no better way than going out to pray underneath the stars. A reminder of how small we are, how big the universe is. Take time to read Job 38 to 41 in the middle of a thunderstorm. Go to the Pemina Hills and read Psalm 65. Take a few minutes every day to really recognize the incredible nature that surrounds us. The hand of the creator in everything we interact with. Watch nature documentaries. Read the biography of any human being who has had the opportunity to look at earth from space. Nature and the universe teaches us of God's love, of his care, of his creator heart. And it also reminds us of how very small we are and how powerful God is. It builds that fear of God in us. So we've covered a lot of ground today. I hope that you've picked up on something here that you can take home and chew on, discuss over lunch. Uh, My prayer is that we as a church can grow, that we keep growing in this fear, in this awe and reverence of our Lord, that we would truly understand these words from Psalm 111, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Amen.